Your pun game is strong. Brought to you by iLand, this is the Cloud Bytes Podcast, where we've brought together a panel of opinionated cloud customers, providers, and analysts to discuss topics related to how clouds are built, marketed, and consumed. Everyone has different needs in the cloud, so we'll debate the topic at hand and at the very least agree to disagree. Our goal is to provide good sound bites about how to manage your bytes in the cloud. And sometimes the best conclusion may simply be that the cloud bites. This episode is all about how resiliency should be considered and how clouds can enhance it. My name is Brian Knudsen, cloud technologist for iLand, and I will be acting as our moderator for today's discussion. This episode's panel includes an exciting group of IT experts with some deep experience with resiliency, both on-premises and in the cloud. Let's start by having each of our panelists quickly introduce themselves with their current role and a soundbite about their initial thoughts about what is important about being resilient in the cloud. I'm Chris Hildebrandt. My primary role is around the end-user computing space. I work mostly with BDI for a large healthcare conglomerate. Resiliency is kind of a key part of my job every day, um, being as I do provide desktops to thousands of people every day. It's absolutely critical that we provide resiliency into the process, into the products. I'm Justin Warren. I'm the founder and chief analyst at Pivot9 Advisors and Consultants, so everything is my fault. And we spend a lot of our time working with technology providers, trying to help them communicate to everyone else in ways that don't suck. I spent a lot of my time in backup and recovery and DR design for large enterprises, so I have seen lots of different ways that both work and don't. It's important to keep things on because you can't use them when they're broken. My name is Melissa Palmer. I'm a technologist on the product strategy team at Veeam Software, and I'm also a VMware certified design expert. You know, I was thinking about this podcast, I've come to realize that kind of throughout my career experience between being a customer, then being an SE, and then doing product engineering and development, there's always kind of been this thread of me doing a lot of weird DR stuff that has come through it. And when it comes to resiliency, it is a very important aspect of cloud design. And if it's overlooked, you're going to have a bad time. Very true. Well, thank you all for joining me. So to start off, the cloud has opened up a lot of new opportunities for protecting and recovering the data and workloads customers have running, whether they have them running in the cloud or on premises. There may be different types of clouds, and therefore, there may be very different ways to do it. There are many different customers and many different needs, as well as many different types of disasters. Melissa, not every disaster is the loss of a complete data center. So can you start by telling us kind of how customers are using the cloud for partial disasters? Yeah, sure. So if the zombies come into your data center and only eat a little bit of it, right? There's different ways that customers usually handle things. I've noticed that a lot of times, from what I've seen, it's been going in two ways, right? We're talking about application level resiliency, where we will say we will send application XYZ to the cloud and application ABC goes to the cloud too. And whatever one is having the issue or an underlying component or whatever it is, we send that application to DR in the cloud. The other thing I see a lot of is kind of like the tiers of service model. You know, there could be three, there could be five, there could be 10, right? Where I'm going to send a tier at a time ranked from my most important to my least important apps to the cloud. So I see it broken down a lot of different ways. And one of the things that I found really interesting I saw in my career was as the cloud was getting started, so this was a couple years ago, when it came to DR, people didn't trust it, right? 
Like, okay, yeah, they trusted their on-prem DR where they maybe tested it once a year with a terrible run book and it kind of worked. So they made a big red check mark and said we passed. But if it was an actual disaster, they'd be in trouble, right? But I saw a lot of customers starting with kind of maybe not the so important stuff in the cloud, right? So I worked on a project with a customer and we actually used this product, Veeam Cloud Connect, which is kind of an interesting segue of how I ultimately ended up working for Veeam, right? But, you know... Island is a great Veeam Cloud Connect partner where you can send things to the cloud. And we actually used it as a stopgap, right? So we had two data centers. We were putting in the new infrastructure in one data center at a time because the theory was, well, if we mess this up, we're only going to mess up one site first and then we'll learn and fix the second site. So it started as for that gap period when we were putting in new infrastructure in one site and we didn't have anything in the second site to recover to, let's try the cloud. And that's a different use case, right? So I see a lot of customers start sometimes with the least important stuff going to the cloud to prove that it works and they can trust it. And then slowly adding more and more critical workloads and applications. So like I said, the two main things I've seen a lot of is application level resiliency in the cloud and kind of that older tiers of service model in the cloud. Yeah, so I've seen the same thing in having been you know customer in SE in the past as well. It's oftentimes about what's most important because, you know, while we may have hundreds of servers, I can only deal with a dozen at a time. So which dozen do you want me to start with? Exactly, right? And how it's really changed a lot, especially with the cloud, right? I feel like we've been going to this more application-driven model as we go to the cloud versus the kind of your tier one through 10 or one through five or ABCDE or whatever. And, you know, you're right. A lot of times it's not the whole data center that goes down, luckily, right? Can you imagine trying to recover a whole data center in what time? Like, I had to do that. It's not fun, right? No. So, and that gives more granularity, right? Maybe I need to do some kind of data center maintenance and only this part of my data center is going to be affected and I can just send that that part there instead of having to fail over everything. Yeah. Failover's happened for ages. It's been interesting watching the transition from kind of hardware-based failure prevention mechanisms to the more software side, particularly with cloud. So I have had a lengthy career, which is a cheeky way of saying I'm old. <laughs> I have worked with large enterprises that run mainframes that have whole basements full of chillers and diesel generators designed for when an amount of growth where the mainframes would take up huge quantities of space. It's been fun watching how we used to design all the resiliency into the hardware, so things like HP nonstop, or it used to be called tandems, where it would everything would run completely in lockstep on two hardware clock-linked machines. And now it's moved a lot to software, so the resiliency is baked into the actual application, which actually places a lot more demand on the software developers, because now rather than saying, hey, hardware's perfect and never fails, we'll just pretend that that's true, so I don't have to write any error checking in my code. Now we do it a lot more in the software side of things. So developers are actually, there's a lot more pressure on them to write code that understands how things can fail and deal with things when they fail, rather than just waving a magic wand to saying, ah, infrastructure will solve my problem. Yeah, which definitely leads to a better approach to partial disasters rather than having to shut down the old site to bring up the new site. Yes and no. It can cause some interesting challenges. And I'll let Chris take that. Yeah. The migration from hardware resiliency to software resiliency has massively changed the game as far as DR and failover, not having to force entire failovers. Remembering back in the day when you had to do complete LUN 
snapshots and recovery. I mean, now you can actually do individual VMs and move things independently as just an application or a part of an application from on-prem to the cloud in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, very much better situation than we had when we were dealing with individual LUNs. And I spent a ton of time during my customer days of moving VMs around on LUNs to make sure that everything that had the same recovery time objective and recovery point objective both were on separate LUNs from anything that had a different combination of those two because that determined what was going to be replicated, when it was going to be replicated, when it was going to bring be brought online. And it was just made it so much more difficult. Bringing back nightmares. <laughs> Still, there are many technologies that are currently in use for recovering to private hyperscaler or VMware based clouds. Justin, what are some of the more popular options that are out there for doing this? And what advantages do they offer to customers? Well, the perennial favorite is backup which not enough people do properly still. As a former steely-eyed storage admin, I always found it very important to have multiple copies of data because stuff goes wrong constantly. Everything breaks. And with all of the new options, as we just discussed, it's not just about hardware, it's about software. You add another thing, it's another thing that can go wrong. So just having another copy of the data somewhere is really important to be able to recover to things. But there's a lot more pressure these days to keep things online 100% of the time. So basically trying to aim for zero downtime means you have to deal with things in a very different way. One of the ways is yeah, trying to fragment things or trying to partition things so that the blast radius is smaller. So if something does go wrong, it doesn't take everything off and you don't have to have, say, a full site disaster. So most of the stuff that you recover is honestly just data issues, like individual bits like rows in a table or Something has just gone a little bit wrong and you need to go and just fix it up a little bit. Even with full-on DR systems, I've seen very, very rarely does an organization actually decide to fail everything across because it's such a big deal, mostly because it's a pain to recover and bring it back the other way. But one technology I think is sort of overlooked is more traditional stuff like pen and paper is a technology. If your business is reliant on knowing what its balance sheet looks like, just having a printout of that could be like, you can type it back in. You don't want to, but there is a lot of stuff that the humans can do that isn't actually in technology. So in a lot of the auditing work that we do, when you go and talk to an organization and look at what are your controls about how you would recover from this situation, some of the time it can just be, we'll revert to a manual process. And we've actually seen that happening you know, fairly recently with ransomware attacks. We just had one quite recently here in Australia with a large logistics company got hit. And so they were processing customer orders using pen and paper. It's slow, but it keeps the business alive. So I think people need to look at the full gamut and it doesn't just have to be stuff in computers. Talk to the humans and focus on what it is that the humans need to do to continue doing their job and then do that in the way that makes the most sense. Yeah, that's a great point. DR is only one component of a business continuity plan, and that requires the human element to really take some responsibility as to what to do and to be able to fill in the gap sometimes between the technology. Yeah, one fun one we often have is you know, you'll have a business continuity plan and then ask the question of like, great, where is it? <laughs> it's on the computer. Yeah, that computer is broken now. Yeah. So now what? Another thing to add to that is actually have a reasonable recovery time frame having the idea that hey 24 hours goes by and we'll have a truck out to a site to recover something sometimes is not a reasonable solution 
when you're running a call center or something like that. But being agile enough to figure out what you actually need, talk to the business units, realize what failover needs to happen, what applications are critical to go forward with, and what order they need to come back up in. Yeah, I had a company decide to not do DR because they couldn't come to terms with the fact that everything couldn't be up in four hours when there was hundreds of machines to be brought up. And that brings us to a great point, right? So Justin said, people want 100% online. We want to be online all the time. This application is the most important thing, blah, blah, blah. Then he mentioned that balance sheet. Well, how much does that application actually make this company? And does it really need to be up 100% of the time? And it's the same thing with the RTL, right? Well, we want to recover in four hours. Yeah, you can do that, but it's going to cost you money, right? So all this utopia of, I want to recover in four hours and I want everything online 100% of the time and you know, all that good stuff. Yes, it can be done, but it can cost money. So can you justify it with whatever business purpose your application is serving? And in some cases, I guarantee you absolutely can, right? There are some apps that are so critical to companies, they cannot be down. But that's not everything. I know, I'm trying to think of a really bad example. I don't need my SharePoint that hosts everybody's favorite music playlists. I don't know. I'm thinking of something that's like not critical, <laughs> right? I don't need that up 100% of the time. I don't need to recover that in four hours. If people can't listen to music for four hours, I, I think it'll be okay, right? Well, I found email can be a sticking point on this one. They say, oh, we got to have email up. It's like, okay, well, how many of your business processes are truly dependent on email? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And they start thinking about it. It's like, well, we use it, but it's so inefficient that we usually end up calling people or there's some queue that things go into. So yeah, maybe we don't need email up in the first 60 minutes. Speaking of that, how did everybody survive with Microsoft Teams being a little out? earlier this week, right? Like we had to go get carrier pigeons and tie little notes and SD cards to their, to their ankles and send them across the world to talk to each other, right? It was like the whole world came to a stop. But you're right. What business processes are tied to Microsoft Teams? Yeah. Pick up the phone and call someone, right? Like you, you can still do that. I would challenge that and say that actually for a lot of places that we've looked at, actually email is a business critical thing because it's the communications that keeps everything else working. Knowing the unit economics of does this app actually contribute immediately to the bottom line? Yes, I think not enough IT organizations actually know that. I think that's why we saw Office 365 take off. Because who the hell wants to be in the business of maintaining that business critical email app and having to keep hiring people that have this very specific skill set to keep it online? Yeah, and dedicated to that one application. Yeah, it's not a competitive advantage to have slightly better email, exactly, although there's exactly. a bunch of companies that are giving a red hot go at the moment, <laughs> but you need it to be there. So yeah, in a crisis, communications is actually really, really important. So having a comms plan as part of your business continuity is important. You know, even if it's that printed piece of paper with everybody's cell phone numbers on it. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to just go, right, in an emergency, I need to be able to ring the, the go-to team and get them in a war room and go, right, now how do we do stage two? So keeping some, yeah, you have to have some comms. So for some companies, you know what? Email is a tier one app and we need to make sure that that one comes on really, really early in the recovery. If it goes down, everything else slows or stops, which is directly impacting revenue. But yeah, I would agree generally just understanding the value of stuff and then having that hard conversation about what this will cost to have it online or mm -hmm. rather if this is not back in two hours, how much will it cost? Right. I remember years ago working for a telecommunications company and we knew how much it would cost us per minute if the SMSC wasn't working in an old VAX VMS things. If that wasn't working, we knew how much money that cost the company per minute. 
because people weren't sending SMSs at 25 cents each. So that app came back fast. But there's a lot of companies that still don't have that understanding, right? So it's hard for them to make yep. these decisions because they've never done the due diligence up front. I just know I want my app to be available all the time because it's really important, but come on, let's put some dollars and cents behind that. So you can prove, yes, I need this budget because it is that important. Or, uh, maybe my SharePoint with my music files really isn't that important and it can kind of go to the bottom of the list. I'd say one quick bit of advice for IT managers who are in that situation, have that conversation and then write down all of that stuff because then when the business says no and you, you, know, you go, oh, well, we'll just muddle through and do it anyway, it's like, don't do that. Yeah. So when they say no, don't do it. But then put that plan in the top drawer. So when everything explodes and dies and everyone's panicking, you can pull out this piece of paper from the top drawer and they go, oh, everything's broken. What do we do about this? It's, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I have a plan ready to go, fully budgeted. All I need you to do is sign here. Congratulations. You just got your budget. Yeah. There's nothing like a disaster to motivate money spend. And, you know, you used the example of ransomware earlier. And that's from an island perspective. We sell on helping to recover from ransomware using cloud backups. And that's been, I hate to say this, but a lot of the disaster stories that come out, we look at like, if only they had backups. And we've gotten customers that have gotten hit by ransomware and end up signing with us fairly quickly afterwards so that they don't have to deal with it again. Ransomware has been the best marketing campaign for backups that we have ever seen. We're floating a theory around internally right now. If somebody in our industry is actually responsible for ransomware <laughs> for that exact reason, fair conclusion. Yeah. Any differences really as customers are choosing what cloud to fail over to, is there any tool set limitations that they may have to deal with when they are trying to decide, should we go to you know, VMware based cloud like Island or should we go to big hyperscaler like AWS? Is there anything that any of you would advise customers to be looking for? Um, mostly just check that it works because it depends. Some people just send data into like S3 and Amazon, which is fine. You've got some data there, but how do you get it back? Go and test the recovery, essentially, and understand what the recovery means because that will define whether or not that's an appropriate choice. That's what we would say. There are lots of options, so you need to know how they work. Yeah. So beyond those specific situations, those specific cloud platforms and the tools that they bring along with them, we kind of talked earlier about application level failover. And when you look at some of the higher end business critical applications like SQL, like Exchange, we talked about earlier, come with their own failover capabilities. So Chris, I know you work a lot with the VDI side of things and some other specialized applications and the heavy focus on automation as well. Can you talk a bit about where application-specific resiliency should be considered, how well they work to the cloud, when they may be better or worse than kind of your traditional DR failover plan? Sure. Application resiliency is kind of a big thing. It's, it should be extremely considered for business-critical applications. It's a lot more prevalent now than it was back in the day. It allows us to just really fail over individual pieces of a data center instead of large portions. And consistent with VDI, I mean, it makes sense for us to roll out multi-data center deployments, whether it's in a private data center or in a data center like Island or Azure or AWS, allowing you some multi-geo resiliency to go along with that, or even local. Geo, allowing you to provide an amazing service for your customers 
or your internal business, allowing your people to spend more time not worrying about where the application is coming from, which is a huge piece. We are extremely keen on building applications that are set to scale and also have built-in resiliency. The big thing for us is just looking at the different ways applications have resiliency, testing them, seeing if they're actually needed. But I guess the other big portion is to quantify the expense of running that application in resilient mode. Is it worth the cost and time and money to spend with a third-party vendor and also the amount of manpower that it requires to keep it up-to-date, patched, and like-for-like as your internal applications? That way you're not having variances between the two. We do a lot of dev tests in that manner, testing both sides. Yeah, so exactly. We have kind of generalist tools that we use, like are just going to back up application XYZ, blah, blah, blah. You know, some backup vendors, they have tie-ins to applications to allow you to, let's say, restore a database, etc. But a lot of these technologies do have native tools, right? And kind of my idea has always been, well, if it has a native tool, you should probably look at it, right? Because they probably know how the inner workings work best, all that good stuff. But yeah, it's important to have plans for sometimes individual components, especially if you're scaling things out, right? Let's say you have a database cluster, right? That's different than a single database. So you need to understand how the database cluster works and how to restore that database cluster to the cloud, right? Anywhere you need it to go. So a DR strategy, like we've kind of been beating this dead horse, right? Over and over again today. But you need to know what you have. You need to understand how your application breaks down. Because I guarantee it has that database component. It has specialized components of either stuff you bought or stuff you developed in-house. So it's important to take the appropriate steps on each component of your application in your environment, right? You might treat a domain controller differently than you're going to treat a web server. So it's important to have an understanding of what makes up your application and how it works together. And a lot of people don't have that either, right? Like they say, oh, I have an application server that I go to this URL and I log into it and that's my application. But that's just the web server, right? There's this database server and then there's other servers someplace else and they all need to talk to each other and they all need to be restored together in maybe a specific order when time for DR actually comes. So a lot of it goes back to understanding your workloads, understanding your application and taking the appropriate steps for each component of it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I'd also encourage people to use more than one method because the number of times I've seen where your primary method of recovery and you go to use it and you're going, oh, it's broken. And we didn't know that. And you end up going back to some other more manual and tedious way. You have a plan B. It could just be, oh, someone has a backup tape from a week ago. That's all that's going to work. And it saves you. So testing stuff and making sure it's working is always good. But having defense in depth, have more than one way of doing it. So if your preferred method doesn't work, you have a plan B you can fall back on. You know, it's really funny. Before I was even working at VM way back when I was in that app, I see... I was working with one of our consulting systems engineers who worked with data protection, right? And we're working on a solution for one of my customers. He goes, Melissa, it's not about backup. It's about recovery. And that kind of stuck with me for a long time because, you know, in my previous role as a customer, I would get paged at one o'clock in the morning because some VM missed its backup window or something like that, right? Everything, all the metrics were backup, backup, backup. It wasn't necessarily about testing or planning or anything. It was like, just did you hit the backup metrics? How long did the backup take? Did all the jobs have green check marks after, right? And no one ever goes past that. 
when you're right, you really do need to be testing the recovery and not just the recovery of your whole application from A to Z, right? The recovery of the individual components, the recovery of a vSphere server, the recovery of a VM, the recovery of a SQL server, the recovery of these individual components as well. And Justin's right, you need to have another way to do it, right? What if, okay, I back up to this backup repository and the zombie starts pulling the drives out of the repository and eating them, right? What's your secondary thing? What are you doing next? That's one thing I do like about cloud and particularly the way the development of software works these days is that it essentially it means that you're always recovering. Mm-hmm. Like containers, for example, you push a new build and it actually just destroys all of the existing stuff and recovers them with a new version. So you're always testing your recovery mechanism. And if you're always doing it, this whole idea of DR and business continuity as, as a special one-off thing that only happens in an emergency, I'm actually not a fan of that. I'm not either. You know, I'm really not. I would much rather be recovering. <laughs> <laughs> if recovery is BAU, it means you know it works because you do it every day and you're practiced. So everyone knows how to do it. You don't have to suddenly remember, oh, God, that's right. What is the weird syntax for recovering a ZFS snapshot on that old Solaris machine? Oh, I have no idea. And now and so, oh, and I can't Google because everything's down and I don't have printed manuals. What do I do now? And then you panic and it's like, Bleh. whereas if it's just, well, so how do we do this? Well, I don't know. It's Tuesday. So we just turn up to work and do what we normally do. That's way easier. It is. It's much easier. And there's something we said about, okay, we have all these backup copies of our data and they just sit there. So why don't we do something else with them? Why don't we use them for development and testing? Why don't we just do something other than let it sit there? Why don't we test those Windows patches that came out so we could see if they work or not? So we're not the next people to be ransomware because we didn't patch, right? We definitely see customers doing that. One of the big things with Island is we provide a built-in security suite. So things like McAfee and Tennis are all built into the platform and We've had customers fail over and run scans in our environment and then compare them to the scans they run on premises and find Delta sometimes. And it's created some pretty interesting conversations with those customers. Well, just as kind of a quick summary, people didn't initially trust the cloud when it came to recovery, but doing little bits here and there, starting with less critical systems and stopgap measures, that trust is growing. It's become a very valid way of recovering an IT environment. Backup is a good place to start. Because most recovery really is very small, very granular, and doesn't require the entire thing to be brought up. And backup is generally the best way to deal with that. This shift towards more of a software-defined data center also gives you that flexibility to be able to say, okay, this is great. Let's start putting parts of our environment to recover into the cloud. And rather than having to shift an entire storage array worth of data from one place to another, you can do individual virtual machines if necessary. And this software-defined model makes it really easy to do that. Keep in mind that not all recovery mechanisms have to be technical. Sometimes pen and paper can be a good way to do it. It's really just a huge balancing act between the RPOs, the RTOs, the money requirements. Ultimately, know what you have, understand what value the business puts on it, and try to balance them out as best you can. And it really should go without saying, but clearly deserves to be said that you need to make sure you test the technologies you're choosing to make sure they actually do what you want them to do. And then test them regularly, if not consistently, to make sure that your plans are actually actionable, that you can actually execute them at the time when the pressure is highest. Disasters rarely occur when it's convenient. If you've spent any time in IT, you know that it's the call in the middle of the night, like Melissa mentioned, that it's always the worst. So go out there and always be recovering. 
So with that, let's finish off this episode of the Cloud Bytes podcast. Thank you to Melissa, Justin, and Chris for a great conversation. Also, thanks to Island for making this podcast possible. Please check out all the episode notes, panelist contact information, further information about this topic, and all the other episodes at cloudbytes.cloud. You can also find our episodes on your favorite podcast apps. If you found this content useful, we'd appreciate you sharing with your friends and colleagues and rating us on your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cloud Bytes podcast. I giggle every time you do that intro line about sometimes the cloud just bites. I have to like keep myself quiet.